everyone. Welcome back to the Leadership Locker. This is the final episode of 2020, which makes me thrilled because I can't wait for 2021 already in terms of all the content we're going to be producing, all the podcasts that we're going to be conducting and some of the guests that we have lined up, which are people you just wait and wait and wait because it is so unbelievably worth it. The goal here, obviously, is to make sure that you are all given incredible advice by experts in their respective industries that are going to help you make better decisions in the workforce as an employee or as a manager or a leader. Or more importantly, if you are an entrepreneur and you have a small, medium-sized business and you are working to scale that thing. That is what we all want. We all want information. We all want guidance. We all want to not hit the potholes everyone else has hit. And these are the people that are selfless enough to take the time to talk to me to give it to you. So all that being said, my guest was Maya Grossman, who is a VP of marketing at Jumpstart. She literally got this job a week ago. So the fact that she took the time to talk to me is pretty ridiculous. She's been a host of a podcast before. She was a head of digital marketing at SodaStream International, head of global product marketing at Microsoft, VP of marketing at Kolu, strategic advisor, product marketing, Google. I mean, like the list goes on. And she has a book, okay, called Invaluable, a bestseller. And basically, she is all about career development. And yes, yes, of course, we're going to cover marketing in this podcast, but it's more about ownership and it's more about overperforming, over delivering, whether you're in an entrepreneurial role or whether you're an entrepreneur, or whether you're just in the workforce trying to figure things out. She also is able to break down kind of some of the different buckets of marketing for any of you that are looking to get into that field so you could understand it just a little bit more. All that being said, This is a great way to finish out the year. I am so grateful for all of you for listening, for taking the time to just let these people in to your lives so that way they could share knowledge that hopefully you could benefit from. So all that being said, we're going to get right into the episode and here we go. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Uh, You already got the intro. I'm very, very excited that Maya took the time out of her new week, new job, new everything to sit here with me and talk for you all. Uh, Can you please introduce yourself before we go on and get into it so they can know who they're talking to? Of course. Hi, I'm Maya Grossman. I'm currently the VP of Marketing at Jumpstart. And I've been a marketer for the past 15 years. And I recently wrote a book called Invaluable about career development. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Perfect. So... I told you before, uh, as we were kind of warming up about who the audience was, and actually, when I approached you about being on the podcast, I was like, well, this is for service members, you know, and veteran entrepreneurs. And I like to talk to people who haven't served so we could get it straight, no chaser. And you quickly corrected me and tell me, tell me what you said. And then if you could elaborate a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, I told you that in Israel, where I'm from originally, military service is actually mandatory. So I served my country for two years. And how was that experience? And what did you do? Yeah, that was an incredible experience. So when you're 18, um, just, you know, graduated from high school, you are actually brought in, enlisted. And uh, for me, I served um, away from my home. So I only got to go back home every couple of weeks to see my family. You grow up very, very quickly. You become very accountable. And I think you get a lot of character building happening yes. very quickly, I think, because you, you really do have to grow up. You have to become responsible, not just for yourself, but for the people 
around you. And I wasn't in combat. I spent most of my time actually uh, being a computer technician in an Air Force base, but I definitely got to do everything that you need to do in training for combat. So it's a very, very unique experience. Did that job play a part in what you did after service and what you do today? Or is that just kind of a coincidence? Yeah, honestly, no. I just really was very much open to anything that was offered to me at that point. I just really wanted to learn. And I thought, you know, learning a little bit more about computers, about software could probably be a great skill to have no matter what I do moving forward. But I actually decided it's not going to be my focus. But I still use some of that information to this day. (laughs) When I need to solve my own IT problems, I know how to do that. Well, I mean, uh, I solve IT problems all the time. All you have to do is just, uh, you know, see my parents over here and ask me to look at something on their phone. I'm like, oh, yeah, I am the IT department. I forgot about all that. So, well, awesome. So you have like an insane amount of experience. I mean, if anyone goes to her LinkedIn profile, you will see just kind of a laundry list of accomplishments and fantastic jobs. You currently are, you are now a VP at a job you just started not long ago. You've been in the realm of marketing for quite some time now and obviously an accomplished author. I mentioned to you that this is usually for entrepreneurs. And I also mentioned to you before we started that I think it's important to kind of break down some of what marketing is. You said, you know, it's a transition, you know, when you go from high school to the military. Well, I'm assuming it was a transition, an equally difficult transition when you go from the military to the workplace. Now, some of the people listening have served 10 years, 12 years, maybe 20 something years, and it's a completely new animal that they're going after. Can you help understand a little bit of what marketing entails or maybe a couple of different segments so they could just have a little bit of an understanding of what that actually looks like. Yeah, and that's a great question. I actually get that a lot from um, new graduates as well, because marketing seems to be such a complicated discipline, um, although it shouldn't be. So when I started marketing almost you know 15 years ago, there was like there were like two options. You could do marketing communications or you could do At the time, it was more like events and anything that happened offline. Now you have product marketing, you have dimension, you have digital, you have events. There are so many different aspects of marketing. Everything has been sliced and turned into its own discipline. But I do think that a lot of the basics still stand. So in general, the way I like to think about marketing, whether you work in the B2B or the B2C world, Your goal as a marketer is to make sales easier. If you were working with a sales team, your job is to make sure that the funnel, everything that comes to them is going to be a lot easier. If you work on a B2C company, you need to make sure that the sell process, so from the minute customers hear about you till they actually make a payment, is going to be a lot easier. And I think when you look at it that way, you can immediately tie marketing into revenue. So it's not this discipline that is just about, you know, writing content and telling stories. It's actually part of the business engine. And I think if you want to try and put marketing into three different buckets, this is what I usually do with founders when I advise on hiring. You want to put it into three buckets. The first bucket is product marketing. And what that entails is everything to do with really understanding the market, understanding your audience, and understanding your product and putting it all together. So that would be the messaging, 
the positioning, your website, what it looks like, the content that you create. Um, and it can also be your go-to-market plan. So how do you actually find those customers? What are the channels that you use? And what is the message that you give to them so they would actually become your customers? The second bucket is the demand generation bucket. And that's where people come in and they try and take that intent or that awareness that you created with product marketing and convert people to actually make a purchase. So that could include, you know, SEO and SDM. That could be advertising on different platforms. That could be outbound outreach, so cold emails, trying to find, you know, customers, potential customers by reaching out to them instead of waiting for them to come to you. There are a lot of different ways to do demand. And it's very hard to do demand well if you don't have great product marketing first, because you can spend a ton of money on advertising. But if you're telling people the wrong thing, if you don't understand their pain points and what they need, they will never convert. So you'll be spending money on nothing. And the last bucket is usually communications. So everything that you share in terms of the high-level company story, your high-level brand, internal communications, which is actually a very important part of a marketing organization. Because if the team internally doesn't know what you're doing, no one is going to appreciate marketing and no one is going to participate in any of your work. Um, so those are like the main three buckets, although there are a lot of other roles that actually roll up to those. But that's an easy way to, to think about it. Yeah, perfect. So when you talk about going to market, and now we'll kind of maybe transition a little bit into some of the kind of entrepreneurs out there. I mean, you rattled off a ton to think about. And as a founder or as an entrepreneur, someone who's like, you know what, like, I always like to say act two is about you. So you know, you're, you're retiring from the military, it's your turn, you know, you know, go ahead, go after it, take the chance, take the leap of faith. You know, there's, there's so much to do. And, and I truly believe, and, and we do video marketing for LinkedIn, uh, where, where personal branding is very small, but it's been very effective. What are the absolute must-haves? I mean, if, if you are able to break that down, and I don't mean to oversimplify marketing in any way, of course, but what are the must-haves just to kind of get started? Because I could say something and you could say something completely different. And then uh, you know, some of the marketers we know could say something. What is in your opinion, do you think is like, hey, if you're going to conceptualize something and put it out there for people to see, you should at least do this. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give you the most annoying answer. It depends. Yeah, so yeah. I don't think, I don't believe there's a playbook. What works for me may not work for, for you or for a different company. It's actually about having the right process and asking yourself the right questions. So you need to start with your customers. Who are they? Where are they? How do they usually consume content? What do they care about? For some people, that may be LinkedIn. For others, that could be TikTok. And let me tell you a secret. I've already heard about a marketing campaign done over facts because the target audience was above 60 and they didn't use their email, but they were using facts. So it's oh. not about the specific channel. It's about understanding your customers and what they need. It also has to do with what you're trying to get them to do, right? So if I'm on Instagram and I'm browsing, I may have some purchase intent for clothes, but I usually browse Instagram on my spare time. I'm not going to buy software for my company. So you really have yeah. to think about the context as well. Um, what I would also say is that it's much better, in my opinion, to focus on one channel 
master it or figure that it's completely wrong for you and then move to the next one. I think when you try to do too many things at once, like, hey, I should be on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook, um, you end up performing poorly on all of them instead of mastering one of them. Um, so I would say ask the right questions, understand who your audience is and what kind of intent they have where you're going to meet them. And lastly, put it into context and create a value proposition that's actually going to get them excited. I love it. And I, I couldn't agree more. When I want to talk about your time at SodaStream, prior to that, you were, it says here, Blonde 2.0. Uh, I can't, I'm not going to pretend I know what that is. I obviously know what SodaStream is. But when you got there, can you tell me what it was like and then what took place over the next you know, almost two years that allowed you to move up to another amazing position at, of head of product marketing at Microsoft? Yeah. So SodaStream, that was really an exciting moment for me because I remember I was doing my MBA and someone, my professor was talking about this company who did an amazing rebrand and basically came to life after like 20 years of being really stagnant. And I was like, I'm going to work for that company. Like I want to work for that CEO and the team who was able to do that. So I basically stalked them for a little bit until, you know, I connected with people on LinkedIn. And then there was this specific role that I thought would be perfect for me. But it also explained that I didn't do a ton of research on the role itself. I was the head of digital. I didn't exactly know what it meant, but I was like, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'm going to know how to do that. And I came in and I thought I was mostly going to do, you know, social media and build a website. And I ended up actually creating um, an e-commerce platform. So I was immediately responsible for, for you know, bottom line sales, which was a little bit crazy. But it was also an incredible learning experience because basically to, before I arrived, the company was mostly focused on selling in-store. And the entire time I was there, I was encouraging everyone and building the tools to start selling online more frequently. So that was a really, really exciting experience. And I got to work with product teams who were building actual products, which is very different. Physical products are very different than software. So it was really interesting to learn how a factory works, how you know placement in stores worked, and how you can create campaigns online, but actually drive people to buy you know in store. I want to hit on something you said. Uh, so before this, I worked at Amazon for a couple of years, and things were going really well in my immediate department and with my teams, and everything was going well. But I noticed something completely changed once I really started building relationships with those who are upstream and downstream for me. And it seems like, you know, like when you're going to look at how some of the process is and, and building those relationships, and you kind of alluded to it earlier about marketing setting sales up for success. How do you approach these relationships, especially when you came in here and you're like, hey, I know you want to sell in store, but I think this is better. How did you go about that without rocking the boat, so to speak? Yeah, um, that's actually something I talk about in the book, and it's called the influence formula. And I think it's very important when you're trying to get buy-in, when you want to build those relationships, to put yourself and your ego aside and really think about what you can do for someone else. Why should they partner with you? What are they going to get out of it? So when I was talking about building an e-commerce website, I was never talking about, you know, selling less in store, it was a way to amplify what they were doing. It, it was a way to reach, you know, a bigger audience that maybe wasn't going in store at the time. And I really built a narrative around that. And I spoke to people many, many times until I was able to actually convince them. 
And I also did a lot of research. I got numbers from the industry to show them what happens when you have an e-commerce website. I got numbers around, you know, what companies we should work with, what would be the cost and what we can actually expect from a business perspective. You can't make a business case if you can't demonstrate how it's going to create revenue. So I did the work to actually find that information. And when you talked earlier about marketing, and then Dave Gearhart always talks about this as well. And I know Chris Walker, who is obviously influential for you and for me. And a lot of these people talk about having goals that directly tie to revenue is, is going to make you a better marketer, make you more effective in the company. And for if you are a startup, and maybe you are not at the position where you have a sales team or anything like that, like how can you craft a message and at the same time, tie it to a revenue goal when maybe all you're thinking about is just a proof of concept. Like, can I even sell this thing? How do you even like conceptualize that? Yeah, well, when you do a proof of concept, that's perfectly fine. I mean, yes, I do think that at the end of the day, marketing should tie back to revenue, but you don't need to have everything you do tie back to it. Let me give you an example. Perfect. When I first joined Colu, where I was the VP of marketing, uh, it was just me. So I had to really start building marketing from the ground up. And I looked at the data. And one of the things that I noticed is, you know, we probably don't have a problem at the top of the funnel. People were finding out about us. They were signing up, but we had a problem with activation. So we had a payment app and I needed people to actually use it to make payments. So the first campaign that I actually ran was about engagement. I really mapped out, you know, what people were doing and made sure that the minute that they signed up, they got a list of educational emails that really showed them how they can use the app. And it gave them reminders to use the app. So that maybe didn't directly tie into revenue, but we were able to move activation from like 2% to 15% within just three months. And that makes a huge difference on the entire ecosystem because when more people pay, more uh, business customers actually are willing to buy the software that we were selling. So if you understand the flow and how things work within your ecosystem, then you don't need to have a revenue number. I can tell you that moving engagement from you know 3% to 15% added X amount of revenue, but I can tell you 100% that it helped the sales team you know, get more customers. Absolutely. Uh, I want to reference a post that really triggered me to, to reach out to you, and I was blown away. And, and I'm going to read some of it, and I'll, I'll be brief, but I have one <laughs> one big takeaway from it. And you say, they hired me to do social media. I built a growth plan and helped grow our customer base 5X. They hired me to lead digital marketing. I built an e-commerce website and grew online sales by 40%. They hired me to do executive communications. And then on we go and on we go and on we go. Um, so clearly the takeaway from me is, is number one, uh, that you're an overachiever. It doesn't seem like you kind of wait for things to develop rather than you seeking them out. But I think this is really, really important. Whether you're going to a startup or whether you're joining the traditional workforce, whatever the job description is, is not all there is to it. And this is why you're so passionate about it because you want to do more, but you also seek yeah. out to do more. Where did you kind of get that? And, and how would you advise people who are kind of like, well, this is really all I need to do to just really extend it and they could add value to not only themselves, but the company? Yeah, I'm not sure where... It's coming from because it started very, very early. When I had my first job ever, I worked in a nursery. So this was before I enlisted. I had a couple of you know months and I was basically hired to be some kind of secretary. And you know, they were paying me to work eight hours, 
but I got everything done within the first four of every day. And one, I got bored, but two, I felt very guilty that I wasn't doing more. So I started asking questions. Oh, can I maybe do this? Can I maybe do that? And what happened is that I learned how to do a lot of things that I weren't supposed to learn. Mm -hmm. So I felt great that I was growing and they were really happy because I was kind of doing more than I was paid to do, but we were both happy. And I think just having that experience really taught me that, you know, it's a learning opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Every job is a learning opportunity. It's a great way to do more, to uh, gain new skills and new experiences, especially if you have an end goal that you're kind of planning towards. So for me, I think having that perspective of my job, my job description is just a suggestion or a starting point. Mm -hmm. It's always been ingrained in me. And um, just seeing the the results and seeing how people reacted to my desire to do more. I do think, however, that some people get it confused. They think that if you have that owner's mindset, if you think about doing more, it means that you're going to end up working 24-7. Yeah. And I won't lie for a little bit. That's what I did until I realized, you know, it wasn't about working more hours. It was about working smarter. It was about fixing problems. It was about realizing that even if you're a small cog in a big machine, your goal at the end of the day is to help the company be more successful, regardless of how you do that. Well, I agree. I mean, all the way. And I mean, I was in the Marine Corps, so more with lessons is exactly how we rolled. I mean, we always had the hand-me-downs of everything and, and we got so much done either way. But one thing that you mentioned, and I think this is so important to talk about, you're like, it was it was kind of 24-7 for a while. And I think it's okay that it, when that time happens, because I think, in my opinion, you could let me know if you agree or not, that there's just going to be this kind of natural process of elimination on on what is truly confounding your time in a manner which isn't productive, which isn't driving the bottom line, which isn't getting more eyeballs on the product or whatever. And if you know inherently that that's not sustainable, I think if you do have an owner's mindset, you're going to treat it like a business and just eventually start doing away with the things that don't matter. Would you would you agree with that? No, 100%. And here's how I solved this problem when I had it. I was doing a lot of things that didn't make sense to me. Like I had boxes to check, but I saw that they weren't actually there weren't any results happening to that work. So I decided to run an experiment. I took my entire task list and I prioritized it based on what I thought was important. And I completely eliminated the bottom 20%. Like I crossed it off, not doing it. And I waited and I waited for like a week. And then I waited for a month and nothing happened. No one cared. It wasn't at the top of the list for my manager or anyone else. No one even noticed. And I got time back to do more of the things that actually make an impact. So for me, prioritizing, that's like the number one thing to do, no matter what you do. If you're a marketer, you're in sales, you're in building your own business, you really have to get good with that to understand what drives impact and where you should spend the majority of your time. And if you can outsource some of those tasks that are not going to be the best use of your time, but still have to get done. You have here also for the owner's mindset, go beyond your job description, which is is clear. That is something that you you like to do. Now, let's just imagine it's um, Captain Cardona and somehow the startup took me in and they're like, you're going to be in product marketing and this, this, and this. And, I, and I'm just like, okay, I'm overwhelmed. Uh, I used to be an aviator. So this is completely different. But for whatever reason, I interviewed well, we trust each other. So we're going to make this happen. 
going beyond my job description, how can I make the case to management or to senior leaders to allow me to try a couple of things that I've hypothesized might be beneficial to the business when maybe I'm still kind of young in the role and they want me to do like, kind of like you're saying that 20%, how, how can you do that in, in a professional way? That's not going to make it seem like you're over ambitious and, and really haven't been brilliant at the basics. The first thing my manager at Microsoft taught me, he said, don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. <laughs> and that's an advice that I follow very closely. But I do agree that you have to be very tactful about how you do that. I really believe in doing the work first, showing results, and then asking you know, for the official approval. But it's very hard to do if you, you need to do something across the entire company. If you have to collaborate with other teams, you don't want to step on anyone's toes. So what I usually recommend is to do a very small experiment. So let's say that, you know, I wanted to build that e-commerce website. So I wouldn't start by lobbying for that. I would start by doing something really small, like doing a really small campaign where I send people to a landing page and I show proof that they're interested in buying online, even if I don't have the tools to actually do that. So maybe I will start there and I won't necessarily get approval for that small campaign because it wouldn't have a huge impact. And then I'll have results so that I can actually go and lobby for what I want. If it's something smaller, if it's just about taking you know a little bit more responsibility, maybe doing something no one else is doing, I'll probably just do it and then let people know you know, hey, I fixed this problem. So now we can do X, Y, Z much better. Mm -hmm. um, if you do need to have a lot more collaboration cross-functionally, then you need to build relationships. You can't just go and do whatever you want if it affects other people. Mm -hmm. you, you need to get to know them. You need to understand their goals and figure out how you can actually help them achieve their goals in a way that will also support your own. Absolutely. I'm seeing here, obviously, about being a strategic advisor. And, uh, you know, it must be really interesting with you working, uh, working with founders. Despite your experience, I'm sure you've come across some clients or people that you've worked with where they just weren't necessarily listening to what you knew to be the right thing to do. There's ideas spinning left and right. Um, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of pressure, personal, internal, maybe there's a board, whatever it may be. What would you say to founders who, who really just feel like, I, I like to say there's a lot of hamburgers on the grill, um, to just kind of slow down just a little bit and really kind of narrow their focus that's going to help them achieve results and trying to do everything at once? Yeah, that's a really big one. And I probably saw that with pretty much every founder that I worked with, not to mention I'm married to an entrepreneur, so I see it every single day. <laughs> but um that focus is going to be crucial, right? Because like I said before, if you try to do too many things, if you try you know, to reach out to everyone, you're not going to please everyone. Mm -hmm. For me, it's usually very similar to what I mentioned before. I try to direct them to focus on the thing that will bring us the most value. So early on, that's not going to be revenue. That's just going to be talk to your customers. Yeah. You don't know what to choose. You don't know what to build. You don't know what to create. Talk to your customers. That's the one activity you have to do because no matter how many times I tried it, it always works. They mm -hmm. always tell you what they want and what they need. And that's a really great way to start building um, your product. And it's a great way to build marketing and the communications that you create. In other stages, you know, when companies start to do marketing, founders usually want to be everywhere and anywhere. 
And I just go back to my own, you know, personal brand and I tell them, look, I'm not everywhere because it's impossible. And because, you know, my target audience is not everywhere. So you really have to go back to that conversation of who we're targeting, where are they, and where can we have the most impact quickly? Um, And I do think that when you start showing results, once again, I love telling founders, just give me a month, right? Give me a month to do it this way. Let's see the results. If it's not working, we're going to try it your way. (laughs) Actually, I was thinking about this earlier, and you know, we we do personal branding for CEOs, like I mentioned, and it's it's a long process because we are trying to absorb and use and leverage the organic reach of LinkedIn and and maybe TikTok here and there, but uh, I wouldn't say we're experts there by any stretch of the imagination. But it takes time. What do you think is a good sample size when it comes to like these varying campaigns? I mean, every like you say give me a month. And obviously, I mean, yes, if I look at this, of course, you, you can have a month and I'm sure something's going to happen, but <laughs> it does take time. So have you learned any ways, you know, to really kind of figure out like, this is a good enough sample size, like at this point, if it's not working, we got to toss it. Yeah, it's actually very hard, especially with LinkedIn. So when I look at, you know, my own content, it probably took like five months to actually see an, an increase in reach and where everything kind of started to snowball and grow. So I agree, it does take time, but I do think you can figure out a couple of shortcuts, right? So for example, you can put some advertising money behind it just to promote some of the content to see if you actually reach people, do they engage? Um, and that's something that you can see very quickly. It's very hard to put a timestamp on it. Some things I can... Yeah tell within two weeks and something, you know, will take a couple of months. I rely a lot on instinct. So I can't really give you the exact measurements. But I would say that if you keep changing what you're doing, it's going to be a little bit harder to measure. So for example, if you're only focusing on, you know, LinkedIn and doing text-based messages, then do that for a little bit. You have to do it for a little bit until you can actually see the results. If you'll be all over the place, it may be a little bit harder to understand what what is actually, you know, creating that specific growth and reach. Yeah, I agree. I I, I like to say, if you confuse, you lose. So last last thing I want to talk about is... um, the book and, and podcast. So you post a podcast, you have the book. There is a certain point where people feel compelled to write a book. And I trust me, I have clients, I have clients who are just like, I, I got a book in me. I'm like, okay, like no problem. And and all that. But there's a point, and, and I think that is where you feel like you may have reached a level of knowledge or experience in which it's only it's only going to benefit others if they know it. Can you talk to me about when you started kind of pushing out information rather than kind of focusing internally on what you had to do, like the podcast and the book, like pushing out that information? Yeah, I guess in a way, being a leader and I've, I've been managing teams for more than a decade now, that was my way of giving back. I love working with young professionals. I love helping them you know, maximize their potential because it's what I've done for, for my own career. And I know that it leads to a much more fulfilling you know, day-to-day. And I've been doing it for so long that it became part of me, but I never thought about you know, externalizing it in, in the way that I did with a book until about a year ago, I had three different people reach out to me and ask me this, the exact same questions about their career. And I was giving the exact same answers within that same week. And I was like, okay, 
this is crazy. I should just write this down. <laughs> and I started writing and one blog post became three chapters. And that's when I was like, okay, maybe, maybe there's more here because that process really forced me to think about what got me to where I am. And that's how it kind of went from just being in my head. Oh, I know how to do this to actually here are the steps you need to take to do it yourself. And just kind of how the, the book came to be. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yeah. So Invaluable is in a way a guide for employees on essentially how to be kick-ass employees, how to nice. over-deliver and in that process, really grow your skills and experiences so you can level up either within your organization or every time you move and get a new job. Or if you don't want to level up, how to maximize your own potential and become uh, a high performer in whatever it is you want to do. I have one last question. I mean, since we're talking about you know this over-delivering, I think for a lot of this audience, the capacity to over deliver is almost inherent. It's expected. It's kind of, kind of the culture that we came from, always doing more without being asked. However, as I mentioned earlier, the transition can be a kind of a visceral experience, especially if you don't land where you want to. I mean, a lot of us didn't choose what job we wanted to do. So now we come out and we're trying to prove our value to anyone that'll listen to us. And sometimes it ends up in an industry or a company that we know nothing about. That being said, there is certainly this this aspect of the veteran community that I, I don't I don't like to say job jump because everyone job jumps and, and in my opinion nowadays like people look for what they want. This is a very roundabout way of getting to the question, which is if you are not entirely happy, but you could still over deliver, how do you go about saying, you know what, this this isn't for me. My my value can be used elsewhere without necessarily you know, leaving a negative impression. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. And I actually touch about it in the book where I say, you know what, we don't always have the privilege of either choosing what to do or if we can leave, right? Because if you have to pay rent, you're not going to leave your job. And what I recommend for people to do is one, either fall in love with the company you work with. So maybe you think you don't like what you're doing, but if you go and talk to the CEO, if you go and talk to experts in the fields that you're in, they may actually give you a different perspective and get you excited. Maybe you find out something you never knew before, and it will give you that motivation that you're missing. But that that doesn't always work, right? So what I do is I tell people, focus about what you do think that you may enjoy Mm -hmm. and try to build the skills that you need while you're still working for that company. Why? Because one, you know, it's kind of a safety net, right? You get to experiment and try different things, but you don't necessarily fail because if it's not part of your main job description, no one is going to be mad if you did something wrong. It's also a great way to work cross-functionally and get to know other teams within that organization and maybe move to one of them. That's actually easier than leaving that workplace and trying to find a completely different job. So that's a little bit easier if you can do that. Or again, if you just can't leave, at least make the most of the time that you have instead of trying to do the least amount of work so that, you know, you're not, you know, you you don't feel like you're wasting your time on something you don't enjoy. Do more work, but do the kind of work that will give you the skills you need to move to a completely different profession. And it's, it's hard to do. But mm-hmm. um, I've, I've been there before. I had to do it myself. And, and yeah. if you just kind of have that switch in mindset, 
it's something that you can do. But if, you know, if you do decide to leave, I think at least for me, what usually works is to have an honest conversation with my managers, with whoever brought me into the company um, and explain that kind of, kind of like breaking up with someone. It's not you, it's me. Um, (laughs) Come up with a suggestion. Like if there's an opportunity to do X, Y, Z within the company, I would love to stay here. You can even come up with a plan. Like if you really know the company, you can say, here are all the things that I can do. You know, maybe we can create, you know, a, a unique role for me that will actually bring value. Or you can just, you know, say goodbye very nicely and do everything you can to leave, you know, on a high note, have like a handoff or transition period where you teach someone else how to do the work. Don't just disappear one day. Don't burn bridges because you want to have people, you know, especially if you're moving to a completely new line of work, you want to have those referrals and recommendations. Those are really, really fantastic. Uh, I'm excited to share those. So uh, last thing is where can we find you and read and, and all that stuff? Where can we find you online? Yeah, so I'm on LinkedIn, as you mentioned, Maya Grossman. You can always reach out to me or go to mayagrossman.com. You can find out about me, about the book and all the content that I'm creating. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. All right, everyone. Again, thank you so much for a fantastic 2020. I promise you 2021 is going to be bigger, going to be better. And that is always driven by you. It's always driven by you. I've been listening to Andy Frisella recently, and I'm I'm starting from the back 2015. I'm not listening to anything 2020. I'm literally listening from the beginning. And he's like talking about how many people and downloads he has. It's like insane. And this is 2015. He goes, but the reviews and ratings aren't there. So he's always making a call to action, always making a call to action. I have to do the same. Now, I don't have 2015 Andy Frisella numbers, but uh, I do have very good trajectory and I want to continue that because I want you to help me help others by reviewing, rating, liking it, sharing it, all of that stuff. Uh, You could always do that on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. And also, anytime you see any video clips that resonate with you on LinkedIn or anything like like that, definitely leave me a comment. I would love your feedback. And this is not about me. This is about trying to get it into the hands and to the ears, more importantly, of the right people. So that way they can scale their business. All right. That's all I got for 2020. I'm so thankful for all of you. I'll see you in 2021.